welcome to episode 10 of the Born Human podcast. It is my privilege today to introduce, in fact it's always my privilege, which is awesome and I love the fact that 10 episodes in, I think I've said that every time and I mean it every single time. But today it is my privilege to introduce to you our first international guest, uh, Regina Townsend of the Broken Brown Egg in sunny Chicago. Regina is an inspirational character who has taken up the mantle I suppose of advocating for black women and those struggling with infertility and really campaigning for change and for acknowledgement and recognition of how difficult that is and how different the journey is. She's very modest and very humble in her approach in terms of how she feels this should just be a conversation that she wishes somebody had had with her but I think she is doing an incredible job of changing the outcomes for other people and I'm not sure she sees it that way but the world at large I think does so it was an amazing conversation I hope you enjoy it as much as I did and it really opened my eyes so enjoy this and listen to Regina and I having a chat. Welcome to today's Born Human podcast. Today I am very fortunate to be at the mercy of the internet and grateful to be able to cross the pond uh, all the way to Chicago. I would have liked to have flown out and said hi in person, but in the meantime, Zoom will have to do. And today I'm joined by the lovely uh, Regina Townsend of the Broken Brown Egg. How are you, Regina? Thank you for coming on. I'm good, Andy. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, my absolute pleasure. It's really, uh, I feel very privileged to have you on and it's it's lovely to be able to take this international at such an early stage. Um, yeah. Regina is, uh, she, well, she'll tell you more about it herself because I'm certainly not going to do it justice, but Regina is founder of the Broken Brown Egg, as I said, um, which is uh, an organisation that helps to empower um, African-American women and families to be created as struggling with infertility um, and I think um, the work that she's done there is absolutely incredible and I came to find Regina through the glory of the BBC and a, a piece that she was part of on there um, and I felt compelled once I'd watched it to uh, to message her actually and just say out of the blue this is before the podcast and just say how amazed I was and inspired I was by the work she was doing so I think there are many families out there who are probably more grateful than I am for finding you but certainly from my point of view I thought it was an incredible incredible thing so I'm going to say thank you first Regina for all the work that you're doing out there. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's always shocking when people are, are when people say such kind things because I'm like I'm just saying what I wish somebody would have said to me, when I first realized that we were dealing with infertility, I felt like, what the heck is this? And nobody mentioned that this, this was not in the brochure. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> I'm usually saying the things that I wish someone had said to me. So it's, it's my pleasure and my honor to be able to help other people not feel so alone and surprised and shocked and angry. Yeah. Anger was in it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's, it's really interesting, isn't it? That you, um, when you do go through something, I mean, there is no substitute for experience, that's for sure. And not that anyone would wish any of these experiences that we go through on anyone else. But once you do, it gives you a, an entirely different appreciation, I suppose, for 
what it is to go through something and you can sympathize with people until that point but you can't empathize with them in the right way and um i know certainly from my point of view in terms of how i got here um that was through postnatal depression and my wife's experience of that and our family's experience of that but these days i kind of feel like a snake oil salesman at times because when i'm talking about it i'm kind of like how does everyone else not just get this like why is it not obvious to you that this would be a problem but it is and uh and it's largely because people haven't experienced it and so i guess it's our job or our chosen job or our mantle <laughs> to kind of take that up and make it more obvious to people you haven't been through it i suppose yeah, um, and just like the the basic stuff that people don't even like it doesn't even cross their mind that when they say things like you know why don't you have kids? They don't think, oh, some people can't have. Yeah. Or some people don't want kids. Like yeah. even just the basic thought of anything outside of the norm of what we've been taught is so hard for people to 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 even digest. They're like, wait, what? Yeah. That yeah. that happens. People don't. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and I've been dealing with it for God knows how long, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's um so tell me a bit about your story. How? Um, tell me about your family first. Let's um, introduce your family to our audience. Let's tell yes. us who your family are. Oh, we are a small family of three. <laughs> um, there's myself and my husband Jabari. We met when we were in college, and we got married at 23, so very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and after 10 years of infertility, we met our son Judah through IVF. Um, so when we first got married, because we were so young um, and we're creatives, so my husband does hip hop, he does music and I write, I've always been a writer. And so we both were like, let's focus on that and then yeah. get jobs and try to establish ourselves. We weren't thinking that there would be an issue because we were so young. Um, and we've just always been the the aunt and the uncle and the godfather and godmother. And we just were the fun aunt, fun uncle kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and a couple years in, we thought, well, we kind of would like to not just be the fun aunt and uncle. We would like our own. Yeah. And nothing was happening. And um, we didn't we still didn't kind of think that there was something like seriously wrong. We thought, oh, we'll go to the doctor and they'll give me something and then that'll fix it. I still didn't think that there were things that would go all the way to IVF. Yeah. Um, and I went to, at that time, I didn't have the greatest insurance. There were times where I didn't have any insurance. And so I would go to the hospital or the board of health. And um, primarily because I had periods that would last for upwards of a month. And I was frustrated with that in general. And I would go and sit there all day, sometimes not be seen for hours, <laughs> sometimes, um, there was one incident where they forgot I was in the, the exam room. I had to get dressed, go back out, remind them, hey, did anybody forget that I was in here? Um, and they had, they'd forgotten I was in there. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. most of the people would just tell me, well, you need to lose weight and here's some birth control pills and that'll fix the period. But nobody was actually looking into what might be causing the issues with my periods. And so it just started to get so frustrating. And so I started to look for blogs and 
when you first start experiencing infertility, you're so gobsmacked by the idea that this is happening, that you're first like, I just first want to know, am I the only person that this happens to? So rather than looking for like research or anything as a librarian, which is where my thought process might've gone instead, I just wanted stories. I just wanted to know who else had experienced this, what else they were dealing with. And I couldn't find any black women. I could not find any black women at all. Um, And even the ones that I did find, there were like two blogs that I found, but they hadn't been updated and there were no pictures. So it was like the shame of the people who were, you know, kind of just speaking out that they were telling their story, but it was in a, I just have to get this out. It's not really about advocating or anything like that. And I don't want anybody to know. Um, And I got so frustrated because I was like, I don't know what's going on with me. I don't remember ever hearing this about Black women. Um, In fact, all that I'd heard was the opposite was that Black black girls are super fertile and they get pregnant in high school. And there was all of these kind of stereotypes. Um, And so I started writing about my feelings in a blog and that became the Broken Brown Egg and about Five years into our struggle, um, my husband and I decided that that would be what we would give back is for our anniversary that year, we would try to put together a gala to kind of not only bring awareness, but also to give back financially, if we could raise some money and give it to organizations that we found. Um, And it just has kind of kept going from there in terms of what the Broken Brown Egg does and having the broken brown egg actually helped us to get to our son because first there was a doctor who was following my site and he and his wife were visiting Chicago and they invited me to lunch. And he said, have you ever heard of polycystic ovary syndrome? I think you should talk to your doctor about that. Yeah. Um, And I said, I haven't heard of that. Don't know what that is. And I went to the doctor and I eventually did find out I have PCOS. And then fast forward some years later, I was doing um, an, a program at the library where I work about pathways to parenthood. And I was looking for a doctor to speak about what fertility treatment actually looks like. And um, having the broken brown egg helped me to find a doctor who would come in and speak. Yeah. And she just so happened to end up becoming our doctor um, when my insurance wouldn't go to one of the larger fertility centers here, she asked me how we were doing. And I told her and she said, well, I'll take your insurance. Come see me. Yeah. So that's how we ended up being able to do IVF. So without the broken brown egg, I don't even know that we would have our son Judah because this has not only been a way for me to help with my mental health, but also a way for me to find the resources that I needed. And now I can share those resources with other people who are looking and want to find a doctor or want to be heard or want to speak out. Cause I even, if journalists reach out to me, I put that in the broken brown egg support group and ask other people, do you want to speak to this journalist? Do you want, because you, you feel so isolated and ashamed. And so having an opportunity to, to tell your own story and feel empowered even though it's not necessarily getting to the baby, it frees up that part of you that's feeling so defeated. And I, I tell people 
infertility is bigger than babies for that reason. Um, so we're a family of three that has come about because, because I just wouldn't shut up about this. Yeah. And, um, and now that I know how much and how deep, um, how far reaching this is and how it affects more than just your physical health and your wanting a child, but your mental health and your, um, your emotional health, your relationship, all your finances. Now that I know that I can't like it's Pandora's box. I can't close it. Yeah. So I keep talking about it because I want people to, to truly understand how much it affects. And um, even beyond the infertility itself, there's also postpartum depression and anxiety and how that is more prevalent in people who've experienced infertility. Um, and then speaking as a black woman in America, recognizing that we are affected two times higher with infertility than than any other race. And so why aren't we getting treatment? Why aren't we moving forward? All of those topics um, I get excited to tell people about because I want to see them change. Um, so that's the long version of, of who we are and, and, and what I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? And actually, I mean, something that really struck me is an old saying that my parents have always said to me, if you, if you don't ask, you don't get. And, um, and the trouble with these kind of issues is that they do encourage you to kind of go introvert, right. And to, to keep it in and not talk about it because it's painful. Um, but actually having the courage to kind of do what you did. And it was, I mean, amazing that you kind of used it. It had so many different facets to it in that it helped you with your mental health. It also helped you kind of find the right help. For, it makes you realize that humanity is great when you can find the right people. Right. But it is a case yeah. of finding them. And actually, you know, your um, our reach to those people is actually very difficult to find. You know, you can't often, you can't just sort of rock up somewhere and just say, oh, by the way, I'm just turning up and I'd like to meet this doctor who happens to have a PCOS yeah. particular interest. <laughs> it's not like a, that doesn't happen. That happens because you've done the work in terms of, you know, you have an issue that you're trying to work through and you're resilient and tenacious in terms of trying to resolve that right so i think it's you know when you speak about it in that way and kind of without the broken brown egg you may not have your son i, I think that's incredible really and i thought i mean my experience i suppose it sounds like yours is the same but with anyone who works or has experienced these kind of um challenges in life it does you do become a bit like a dog with a bone almost of like I, I can't if I'm a compassionate person there's no way I would want anyone else to go through these things so yeah. don't keep my experience to myself let's share it you know and make the most of it and I think that's incredible and yeah, so it's become part of my self-care it, it really is it's part of my self-care yeah and so how much time does a broken brown egg take up is it really it, presumably it's quite you you're busy with it these days it is it is my other full-time job whether I, I think of it that way or not um and it's it's a labor of love I don't get paid for the broken brown egg really there are times where people might send me a gift and I'm like what I'm just telling you my story yeah um but for the most part it is it's something that I do all day without even thinking about it there are times where I'm I'm out for for other things and I'll see a conversation spark up about one thing and it, it 
it makes my spidey senses go off and go, wait a minute, yeah. let's slow down. Maybe we need to look at it this way. Um, and if, if I'm seeing someone and they're dealing with, you know, like, like I said, I work with teenagers um, at the library. So I have made it a point to when I, when I order books for them in the nonfiction section that are about health, I look for books that speak honestly about reproductive health and reproductive justice. So the books that you might find in my library include topics about fibroids and endometriosis and polycystic ovary syndrome, because I want them to have a well-rounded understanding of their body as opposed to just sexual education. Because I think when we talk to young people, that's really what we tell them is just don't have sex, don't get pregnant. And if you do have sex, use a condom. And, and while that's important to kind of tell, there's also how does my body work? Like yeah. it's our responsibility to educate them. We should also be educating them on how to make the decisions now that will allow them to make the decisions they want to make in the future. Um, and instead of policing their bodies, teaching them about how to operate this big piece of machinery that they, you know, just happen to have. Yeah. Um, and so whether I want to or not, it comes up wherever I am and I'm, I'm active in my church. If there's ever a, an opportunity to talk about infertility, um, I, I make sure to bring that up. If there, when it comes to like Mother's Day, Father's Day, back to school, all of those things that people don't think about the connection, I'm the one that's there going, wait a minute, before we say this, let's look at this. Um, I, I'm a part of a sorority in our, um, I'm an advisor for our youth and we have a tea party every year and it was called the mother-daughter tea. And my broken brown egg mind was like, well, first of all, <laughs> every little girl that we work with doesn't necessarily have a mother. So yeah. let's not call it mother-daughter. And every woman who wants to participate, who's in our organization may not ever be able to have children. So let's not call it mother. Why don't we call it young ladies tea or spring tea or, but if you've not experienced the pain of feeling excluded on Mother's Day or feeling excluded when it's a family event or feeling left out when it's, you know, something that you can't do because of how your body works, you're not going to think maybe this shouldn't be called that. Yeah. <laughs> you're thinking, well, it's always been, we've always done dads and donuts on Fridays and it's, you're not thinking that way. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's something that I just, I know I get on some people's nerves with it, but I'm like, I don't care if I get on your nerves, if that one person who would have felt bad doesn't feel bad and feels included and feels thought of and seen um, because it really is a part of our humanity to want to be seen. And um, when we don't feel seen, it adds so much stress and it makes you feel unwanted, unneeded, um, you know, it, it makes you question your existence. It, it creates all these far reaching issues when it could have just been as simple as someone just saying, I see you, yeah. I see you, you're included. Come on, you're welcome. Yeah. Come on, it's a big deal. Yeah, I, I get that. And I'm, I'm interested to know, when, the, when you were going through your journey, I'm interested to sort of understand how you handled that when you, before you had Judah and 
kind of how that was for you being that person that didn't feel included and, and was kind of marginalized to that degree how did you handle that and what was that like for your mental health and coping with that in terms of relationships and family etc yeah it was rough there were times where it got really rough you know I had friends who were having kids and it was like I was always somehow on the fin- the friend crew that was supposed to put together the baby showers and um, my sister and I are nine years apart and when we were first um, experiencing infertility my sister got pregnant and she was 16 so there was like this juxtaposition of I'm worried for her but also damn it Julia you know, like <laughs> my brain um, and so having the broken bright egg honestly helped me um, because really before it was an organization, it was just my journal. It was my way of writing out those thoughts that I felt I didn't have anywhere to say. Um, And I also had to learn how to be okay with the fact that I couldn't be what, I think we put a lot of pressure on girls, especially social pressure of, you can't not go to that baby shower. That's your best friend. That would hurt their feelings. You can't not talk on the phone for two hours about whatever your friends want to talk about. That's rude. You should always, you know, and and I had to really let those things and expectations go. I don't want to sit on the phone for two hours because I don't want to hear you talk about, you know, you getting all the supplies together for your child going back to school. I don't want to hear that. And it's not that I don't care about you or them. It's I care about me. And if yeah. I don't look out for me, who's going to look out for me? Yeah. So I had to really, yeah. And I, I had to get really good with myself and I still work on it um, to this day, <laughs> but I, I, I really had to get comfortable with saying, nope, I'm not going to that. Nope. I'm not sitting on the phone for that. Text me first before you call. Like I had to figure out what works best for me, what works for my mental health. Um, and even professionally, I'm a, I'm a librarian, but I'm a children's and teen librarian. So a lot of my time was spent either running story times for young children or um, working the desk in the children's department. And we don't think about the things that we say to people, yeah. but I would be sitting there and someone would ask for a book recommendation and I would recommend a book and they go, do you have kids? Um, and it was like, well, no, but I've got a master's degree in library science, you know, <laughs> that kind of conversation didn't even occur to them as being rude or disrespectful. It was just seeking connection. They they weren't trying to be mean, but those kind of things would be jabs at me where I would just kind of like have to take a break, go to my office, go to my car, kind of recompose myself. And even the kids themselves, I, um, I love the kids that I work with. I've always loved the kids that I work with and they, would say things to me like, oh, Miss Regina, you're like my cool aunt, you know, or Miss yeah. Regina, you don't want kids. They would say things and not realize that it was like, ah, jab in the heart. Yeah. But it was also their, their way of being sweet. It was their way of saying, I like you. You're pretty cool. Yeah. And I had to learn to decode that for myself and realize they're not attacking your womanhood or your personhood by asking whether or not you have kids they're actually saying, I think you'd be a great mom. So I would have to like reword it for them in my head. Like when this person asks what you're waiting on, what they're really trying to say is, I think that you two are a great couple. I think you'd make great parents. That's what they're trying to say. Maybe they just don't know that that's really 
what they could say. Yeah. <laughs> they could or, just say that. They yeah. just don't. Or in the naivety of it. I mean, you know, because like most people are well-intentioned, aren't they, with those things? And you, yeah. you know that there isn't like any, very rarely is there malice behind it or people being genuinely um, cruel with it. But at the same time, that doesn't make it feel any less painful. And I think there is a whole journey of, uh, in my own sort of journey through counselling and therapy and those kind of things, which have been revelationary really in terms of learning who I am and what I need and and kind of self-worth and self-identity there is this whole piece of we kind of as kids we grow up and we, we build our foundation stones very very young in terms of like what hurts us what affects us what makes us feel loved what are our love languages all those kind of all those kind of subject matters um and then it, so they're formed really young and, and and I guess they're formed to keep us alive frankly they're formed mm-hmm. to be like if someone says that they're generally trying to harm you so leave at that point if yeah. it makes you feel that way um, because that could be a frightening situation it will keep you alive um, and then as adults we get to a point whereby like you're saying a teenager kind of says to you you know you're the really cool aunt and like you say it takes a lot of emotional energy to ignore that sort of um the hurt part of you and kind of the the fight between kind of adult and child to be like I know what you meant there and I'm gonna kind of listen to what you meant and not hear what you said because Mm -hmm. I'm gonna make that choice you know and actually there is always a positive way of taking it if generally in those situations if if it is meant with positivity um but it is that is a really difficult thing and it doesn't take away from the initial sting and kind of how that feels presumably and, and what that kind of leaves you with you know but um did you say you've got better at it over time presumably as you've kind of learned to cope with those things yeah yeah I, I reword things in my head and I um I also really started to get transparent and honest you know my niece is um 14 and a, a a couple months ago, she asked, you think you, you, you think you and Jabari are only going to have Judah? Or are you going to have more kids? Um, and in that moment, old me would have been like, uh, yeah, we'll think about it. And I would have just brushed it off. And then later on been like, oh God, even the kids see that he's alone. Um, <laughs> but, but in that moment, instead, I felt like number one, this is a teaching opportunity for her. And number two, this is a self-empowerment moment for me to be honest. And so I told her, you know, we don't know yet. I Getting pregnant is not easy for me. And so it would probably take um, some medical help, maybe even another surgery. And so we don't know yet. But yeah. thanks for asking. That really lets me know that you think I'm doing a, <clears throat> a good job. Yeah. But it took me this level of you know, I'm used to it now to be able to just say, you know what, I can be honest with her. She's 14. Yeah. And it's important for her to know that not everybody can just decide, let's just have a baby. And so even in that brief interaction, um, I was proud of her for how she, and she took the, I think we think kids can't take information, but I've been working with teens long enough to know they can pretty much handle it. And so she was like, "Hmm, okay. (laughs) <laughs> thanks for letting me know Makes and she sense. went on with her day <laughs> and I went on with mine yeah. I mean that is is fascinating isn't it and actually when you do have those 
you know what seem like difficult conversations because they are they're conflict or they're um confrontational that they often are aren't they they're not and and really they don't need to be if you look at them as educational and if you respect the fact that people's views are different or their perspectives are different and that everyone needs to see it from a different perspective to be able to appreciate it um and to be able to sort of take those reins and say actually the smart thing to do here is for me to be straightforward and honest because that empowers our relationship as you know aunt and niece and at the same yeah. time she learns from it and i'm able to kind of walk away from it with my head held high and not carrying it for the rest of the week trying to work out how it felt you know? yeah. <laughs> right and that's such a such an amazing thing and, and i think that's a, a sign of maturity that in all those um with all these kind of things they are often dealt with and i guess that's why this podcast exists really is that having these conversations shouldn't be scary they are not nice subjects quite often they're painful and they're enduring subjects that are actually horrific in many cases for people to have to process but at the self-same time the smart way to deal with them is to ask for help to talk about it to resolve it and try and work out a way through it rather than kind of hiding away from it and not talking about it but yeah i think as a society there is this um you know taboo around talking about difficult subjects don't you know let's not raise the elephant in the room and it's yeah. like there is no elephant in the room it's, like... it's just a mouse actually we just need to talk about it and explain that it's a mouse and everyone's happy you know yeah um, we move on. we're tougher than we think yeah we're that's tougher. it and we're more capable than we think right um we, and and i guess you know that modern science is you know if we were having this conversation 50 years ago then it would have been a very different conversation you know um but modern science is amazing these days and it can make things happen that otherwise might not happen as naturally as we might have assumed right but, yeah. yeah so your in terms of your process with um so with your pcos presumably that required surgery to to kind of help you through that and kind of get to a point whereby you were able to have Judah presumably yeah well the the thing with the PCOS was it, it causes insulin resistance so my body doesn't process insulin properly and so um what we found is that my fallopian tubes were completely blocked we found that my um my uterus had cysts and polyps and so we had to remove those um, and once that was out of the way, because of the block fallopian tubes, we still were going to need IVF, but at least then I didn't have a body that was, you know, one, what <laughs> my doctor and I looked at it as like, my body would stockpile all that uterine lining for like Y2K or something. And so <laughs> when I would finally have a period, it would last so long because it had been building up and building up and building up. And so we did a DNC to kind of restart it and then also a polypectomy to remove the polyps and the cysts and all of that kind of nonsense um, so that in her words it would be a really safe and comfortable place for an embryo to develop and um, so once we did that we had to wait a while let my body kind of calm down and then move forward with IVF and even then because of the PCOS my body was going to react strongly to the medications that were um, the, the stimulating the follicles. So we wanted to make sure that I didn't hyperstimulate and develop too many because that's what PCOS patients sometimes deal with. 
is they develop so many follicles that the follicles are what release the eggs that it's uncomfortable and unsafe. It's so much. So we had to be really careful about monitoring the medication. And then we had to cut it at a certain point. And then rather than what some people used to do in the past, which is where they would develop the follicles, develop the eggs, retrieve the eggs, um, fertilize them, put them right back. My body needed to calm down first from the medication. And so we uh, stimulated the follicles, they retrieved the eggs, we um, fertilized the eggs, and then we froze our embryos for a while so that my body could calm down. And then we did an, uh, an embryo transfer. And that's what led to Judah. So that's like the, the quick and dirty medical <laughs> yeah but when you like i mean when you describe it like that that's a quick and dirty way of describing it but you know i mean when you were explaining that my brain was going to while all this is going on you've got work and family yep. and friends and yep. life to contend with around it and you're having to kind of process all of that and and it's not just like oh pop into the hospital for a day and it's done kind of thing this is like weeks and months of like planning and preparation and operations and you know yeah. not insignificant serious operations you know and, and I think that's where my brain goes with it is like the mental drain that can be on you and your husband are amazing right because they're so they're so intense and how did you find that between the two of you kind of thing sort of fending off like all the kind of stuff yeah, around you, you know yeah <laughs> I think um, we had to build up little routines for things. So like with IVF, when it came to shots and things like that, because Jabari had to give me shots, um, we, we built a routine for in the evenings when it was time to do the shot, it would be like, okay, we're going to watch Parks and Rec or we're going to watch The Office and I'm going to look this way and you're going to do that. And then after that, we're going to have like a Kit Kat. So it had to be like something, some kind of a reward um great choices also, of television shows by the way yeah thank you <laughs> <laughs> and we also and i like the uk version and the american version <laughs> yeah. of the both office. have their I've own seen. merits in very different they, ways yeah they're great all the way through um and so we would set up those little routines and then go for a walk um we bought a dog like we found lots of little ways to kind of cocoon ourselves in but then on the flip of that, we had to also learn to respect each other's space because when you're dealing with this together, it can be something where you're almost in battle with each other all the time. It's like you're in the trenches together, but where do you get your reprieve? Mm -hmm. um, and so for my husband, that's his music. That's going to the studio with his friends. That's um, going to different shows around the city. Chicago has a very extensive hip hop history. And so um on whatever side of town, you know, he could find a show or somewhere where his friends were performing or performing with his friends. That was some way of him having an outlet. We also both really enjoy video games. And so, so that was an outlet also where we would sit and play Grand Theft Auto. We would play Hitman. We would play, you know, Skyrim, whatever was out that was a long kind of intense game. That was also an outlet for us to kind of focus. And we laugh a lot and it's not, um, so much that we're perfect and that we don't have any problems and that we didn't have our really bad days also, 
But I will say that even in the midst of some of our really worst, like worst, worst days, um, we can typically find something to laugh at even in that, (laughs) even in those moments of just like, okay, I'm still angry, but that's hilarious. And I'm going to laugh at it. And then when I'm done laughing, then we'll, we'll be mad again. But we had to really navigate those things because you're also, you're going to work. Like you say, you're going to work, you're dealing with the stresses of your job. Um, and it was pretty hard on Jabari, I think, because a lot of the medical issues at first were just me. So they knew that there were issues with me. They knew that we were going to have to deal with, excuse me, my polyps or fibroid or whatever. Um, but nobody had really done anything to look into what might be an issue with Jabari. And so when we finally got to the phase where they tested both of us and we realized that there were some issues on his end also, and he was dealing with diabetes, I think it kind of was a heartbreaking thing for him to realize, oh, I'm a, I'm a part of the problem. Um, And we had to navigate even those feelings. And that was also a moment speaking from the advocacy side where we realized how little is done to support men in the fertility conversation and there's not many you know websites or anything that speak directly to men at least at that time there there are more now but there are not many that spoke directly to men about how that affects your masculinity or what you've been told about being a man and even just the feelings that you're allowed to have because you've been supporting your partner and you're the man and you're supposed to be the tough let me support her while she's dealing with her feelings but then where do I go with my feelings? So yeah. we learned that that wasn't a, a thing. We also looked at even just the humane part of, you know, sperm and semen collection. There were, there were places that, and I've not just heard it from Jabari, I've heard it from other men that like, whereas women have an, a, an operating room or a, an exam room, there are men who like, it's like, we'll go into this bathroom here in this public, you know, medical office there's no humanity to their side of things and who's going to talk about it. If none of them are even, you know, talking about the fact that they're dealing with the issue in the first place, who's going to bring up the lack of support that they have. Um, So we really had to navigate all of those individual feelings and find ways to laugh and um, be honest and just kind of clue the other person into when we're having a bad mental health day. Like even to this day, we'll say, I'm having a rough day. I'm having a hard time. Yeah. Um, and just those words tell the other person, okay, you're struggling mentally. It's not, you know, the day was bad. It's no, something is not flowing the way I want it to. And I need a break um, yeah. or I need to talk this through and I need you to just listen. We've had to teach ourselves how to say things. One of the things that Jabari says that I appreciate is he'll say, um, did you, need me to fix that or you just want to say what you want to say you mm-hmm. want to just grieve you want to sit in the grief for a minute or you want to actually fix it um and I appreciate that because sometimes I just want to say this sucks I really don't want to fix it because I don't feel like thinking about how to fix it I just want to say okay but also this sucks I want to have my tantrum and I'll figure it out later but right now I just want to I just want to bitch about it yeah <laughs> And that's all right, right? Like I want, you know, yeah. just being heard is therapy in its own right. You don't need, I don't need an answer to it. I just need to be heard. And it takes, you know, it fills me with sort of amazing pride for the two of you to sort of think that your relationship is that way. It's like a, 
uh, and I, I'm lucky enough to have a similar relationship with my wife where actually I've learned that it's sort of, you know, I grew up in my childhood and someone going quiet with me was like a, um, like a really bad thing, right? Yeah. It was painful. Whereas actually for my wife, you know, through our marriage, I've got to realize that actually she just needs quiet time sometimes. And she can tell me that now. And the child in me is kind of like, but why can't I fix it? Like, I yeah. just want to fix it. And the adult was going, you just sit yourself down in the corner. She just needs some time. Yeah. And that's okay. You know, and I think it's amazing that you sort of, you know, I, I guess, I guess having an experience like this does brings you together in a way where you have to co- kind of hold each other up at those times. And you learn so much about each other and certainly, uh, you know any sort of adversity does if you come through it in the right way does make you stronger as a couple I think um and I, hopefully I, I'm not just yeah. speaking for you in that but it sounds like no, that's what's yeah. done for you. and we're and not amazing. we're not taught that I, I think um and I, I saw someone else um post last week about their relationship and I thought yeah we're not taught that you should be able to work through the adversity together we're kind of taught that if you find your person it's because you guys are perfect for each other and everything's going to be happily ever after and if you have an issue then that means you guys weren't meant to be together and that you should have just chose the you chose the wrong person and that's actually not the case yeah (laughs) it's if you chose the right person it's they're going to be the one that you can work through really really crappy times with because they're the person that at least understands who you are and sees who you are um and we do ourselves a disservice when we think that if we have issues or if we have something bad happen within our relationship that it means this is the wrong relationship Mm. it's not the case it means that you're human people two human individual people who are going to sometimes make really horrible decisions who are sometimes going to have a really horrible day, who are sometimes going to say something you didn't mean to say, do something you didn't mean to do. And how are you going to work through that? And what does unconditional love mean to you? Does that mean we're good as long as everything's good? Or does that mean we're good no matter what happens? And I respect the fact that you're a person, individual from me, you're a separate person from me. And that the things that you do may not have anything to do with me or the things that you may say may have something more to do with how you're feeling than they do how you're feeling about me. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. we, we do ourselves a disservice when we don't see it that way, when we think, oh no, this is horrible. We shouldn't be together. It's like, no, this is horrible. How can we work through this? Yeah, what yeah. can we figure out? Because any relationship takes work, right? Like, I mean, regardless yeah. of what you go through, it does take work and actually... You know, that's something that I think since being married, I, I've realized that in that we, you know, we've had our challenges and there's been things that have happened largely to do with children. Um, but work's got in the way at times and stuff like that. And I think what's unfortunate about this day and age to some extent is that we live in such a sort of transient kind of culture in terms of like, once I'm finished with that, I'll just move on and get something else yeah. kind of thing. And actually, you know, there aren't many things that um kind of historical values and that uh really stand out for me on in terms of like change change is good for some for a lot of sort of historical norms and stereotypes and stuff like that but the one around kind of relationships and marriage and kind of like 
for better, for worse, in sickness and in health and all of that, is like I realise and I I feel like I've been able to, I would never have wanted to go through it again. I would never have wanted to go through all the stress and the anxiety and the depressions and those kind of things. But I feel really grateful that I've got this different version of us. Every time we go through something, I feel like I've got yeah. like version 5.0 and it's kind of like still going you know (laughs) right and I feel really privileged to kind of be married to somebody that I love and I'm very grateful for on a daily basis who understands me more today than she did yesterday because we're able to be honest you know and I'm not I'm not of that mindset and I you know and I think any good marriage shouldn't be of that mindset or any relationship really shouldn't be of that mindset where you kind of just go the easy option is to kind of knock it on the head and just sort of move on you know because you'll only you know odds are you'll probably come up against that again in your next relationship and you've got to face it at some point you know but it is amazing how it kind of develops and builds you as people right and then kind of brings you closer and I think that's an amazing thing in um one thing that struck me was uh you you said it early on but um uh, obviously over here we've got we're fortunate enough to have the NHS and that that whole process is different different depending on where you live but uh, IVF is generally available on the IVF for free for a certain number of cycles um I'm saying that very flippantly it's not as straightforward as that for to go into that stage but I'm thinking about kind of being in the US and kind of the insurance side of things and how was that in terms of financially and stress wise and kind of I guess when you're initially taking out health insurance, you're not thinking about fertility and that kind of thing. At all, at all. And I I just talked to somebody last week about how when we're, when we get jobs here and they come with benefits, we don't even read the packet that that it comes with. We're like, oh, great. I've got benefits. Thank you. Um, And we're not thinking about, but what do I need specifically? Thankfully, I live in Illinois, and so since I'm here in Chicago, Illinois, there is um, a mandate that says that infertility is covered, infertility treatment is covered. Um, But in the United States, I think there's only 16 states where infertility is a mandate that they have to cover it. And even then, it doesn't necessarily cover everything. And there are little, not, I don't want to call them loopholes, but they're kind of loopholes where some companies don't have to offer it. So if the company has less than 50 employees, for instance, they can say, well, we, we're not going to include that because we don't have enough employees to cover the cost of us having an option that not everyone's going to even need. Um, so there's little things like that. And then for the majority of people who live in the other states who don't have that mandate, Um, they got to come out of pocket to go and see a fertility specialist. And it's really expensive. Um, There's also some things that are kind of, you feel like it's wasting your time where your your fertility insurance that's included in your health insurance may say something like, well, you can do IVF if you've already done four IUIs. And it's like, well, but I already know that's not going to work for me. So I- I still got to do those five. That's a waste of my time. Um, So those kind of things. And there are a lot of people who struggle with the concept of the finances. And so for us, because we knew that Illinois was mandated, we weren't so much worried that we wouldn't be able to afford the treatment, 
but that doesn't cover the cost of your co-pays or if you need certain um, specialists or, or testing. So like with African-Americans, for instance, there are uh, carriers of sickle cell. And so there are a lot of people that I know who follow the Brooklyn Egg um, who had to pay out of pocket to have pre-genetic testing for their embryos to make sure that they didn't have the sickle cell trait. So there's all these other things that the costs start to really pile up and yeah. it can be overwhelming. And especially speaking as a, a, a Black person who's a middle-class Black person, um, a, a lot of the things that I would see when I would look for websites or, other, or listen to other people's stories, they would say things like, and it's still heartbreaking, but they would say things like, you know, we had to mortgage our house. We sold our house so that we could move back in with our parents and so that we could afford this. And it was really heartbreaking. And then I would think a lot of the black couples that I know can't even afford the house in the first place yeah. to have a house to mortgage. So if you're struggling and you had to mortgage your house, what does that say about us who can't even get to the house part? Like, so it was an emotional strain when you're thinking about what your finances can do if your insurance won't. Um, and so I advocate a lot with Resolve. That's the national fertility um, organization here in the U.S. And I work with them. We try to advocate for legislation to make sure that those who find that their, their state doesn't have coverage can ask their legislators to, to provide it and make it make it clear to them why it's important. You know, infertility is a disease. Yeah. It's defined as a disease by the World Health Organization. And yet it's the only disease that's not, you know, something where it's just a given that it's included in your medical insurance. So um, I work with Resolve. I work with Fertility Within Reach, which is another advocacy organization that helps people receive fertility benefits. There are companies here that are specifically focused on providing um, insurance benefit solutions for companies. Um, so I really try to get that information out. And then there's also people I work with who provide grants right. um, to, to help people move forward. So yeah, there's a big issue when it comes to what's covered by insurance and what people have to pay out of pocket. And because it's such a private thing, people feel uncomfortable telling family and friends, you know, we need this much money for this. Um, and a lot of times, and, and people don't think of it that way when they say it, but a lot of times people's response can be very privileged when you say, you know, we're raising money for this. It can be like, well, if you don't have the money for this, why are you having kids anyway? And it's yeah. like, well, yeah. I can't afford a $25,000 procedure. That doesn't mean that I can't afford daycare or diapers, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, but the, the way that people I still respond, earn a living. I just don't earn 25 grand a week. Yeah. yeah. I just don't have an extra line around <laughs> for, for a chance because IVF doesn't even guarantee a baby. It's just a chance. Yeah. So I don't have yeah. that lying around to just take a shot um, literally and figuratively. And yeah. I think, when you hear those responses, it makes you so ashamed and embarrassed or, you know, just frustrated that you just kind of, you shut up. You're just like, I'm not going to tell anybody. And so we're going to figure out how to raise this money ourselves. But there is a lot to be said about, you know, finding the people that are your people that are willing to help you get to your dream. Hmm. And I know for us, we sold t-shirts, we had a paint and sip fundraiser, um, and it was really just since we knew that our insurance was going to cover the majority of it, it was so that we could pay for the medications 
Um, and I, I, I have, um, there's an actress here, Calais Stewart, who has talked about, she, she froze her eggs and she talks about how, why is it okay that we'll do a baby shower for someone and help them get all the supplies they need for a new baby, but we won't throw a shower for somebody who's trying to get to the baby. And so she's told people have an egg shower, yeah. have a fertility shower where you tell people, this is what we're trying to raise money for and let them support you in advance. And maybe you don't have a baby shower after that. You just like, I just need this. Yeah. Um, so the finance part and the getting to the treatments part is a really big discussion. And it's, it's overwhelming to a lot of people. A lot of people don't even know that they have a state that mandates it because when they hear all these stories about how expensive it is, they don't even really research. They're just like, I already know I can't afford it. And they count themselves out. And so um, I try to make sure to post when I see a grant, when I see any kind of legislation so that people realize you don't have to sit in that feeling of defeat. You can either find out where you actually are um, you can ask your HR representative. A lot of times people assume, oh, well, my job doesn't cover it. And so I just can't do anything about it. When there have been cases where people have gone to their human resources department and asked, and the answer was, oh, we didn't know anybody needed it. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, well, yeah, oh, I we're quite it. happy to do it, but we just didn't yeah. know. It, yeah. And then they'll do it. So it's not always the case, but there are little, you know, magic moments like that. But that health insurance part is whew, the costs yeah 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 is it a changing landscape do you think in terms of legislators and kind of governments uh, the government kind of taking a more sympathetic view on it and kind of looking to change or is it kind of still a very static situation that kind of you're picking away little bits and pieces at the fringes to try and improve people's lives you know it ebbs and flows it ebbs and flows there are different states that have um people who are advocating who like me who have experienced infertility and then found out that their their insurance didn't cover it or that their um their job or their state wasn't um passionate about it and they've made it their business to kind of be at every advocacy day and speak directly to their senators and um, congressmen and, and find out how to personalize it in such a way that their legislators are then going to take that to the floor and really fight for it. Yeah. And in many cases, you know, our, you know, legal, <laughs> when it comes to the people in power, oftentimes, just like regular people, they don't think about it until they need it. Yeah. And so what we found is that our greatest advocates when it comes to Congress and um, even just locally, you know, state legislators, if they've experienced it, then they'll fight. They're, if they have a relative, the, they're the weak spots. It, they're the ones you yeah. need to get to. <laughs> yeah. If they have a relative who's experienced it, then they get it. Yeah. Um, and then even just in terms of patriotism, we've tried to explain that um, when it comes to the benefits that our veterans receive, sometimes infertility is not, you know, included in a way that is feasible for them, even in terms of, you know, preservation. And so really speaking to the hearts of those who may not have a personal connection to infertility, but they do have a personal connection or a pride in our veterans and they want to support their ability to build their family if they've served the country they should at least be able to move forward with their family life however they choose yeah that getting that into their heads 
it's hard, but we found that if we have grassroots advocates on the ground in those states that are willing to put in the work of, you know, getting on the phone, sending those letters, we can get some traction, but it, it is a steady going process. It's, it's constantly, um, because you're also looking at the laws that may come out that may impact fertility. So if we have laws that are on the floor that are um, coming up for vote that could say, um, like there's the personhood laws that were, were coming up here where the, the goal of the person who wrote the bill was really to be anti-abortion, but they didn't include the fact that some of the wording in that law would then make it where we can't have embryo storage, you know? Right. So looking at it on those two, two levels, a lot of times people who are writing the bills that are trying to fight against one thing don't realize that they're fighting against that thing affects this thing over here. Yeah. And so we also have to look at those laws when they're coming out and say, wait, 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 I know what you're trying to do, but do you understand that that means that I can't retrieve eggs here and I can't store embryos here? If you're saying that this is a person at this many weeks old and my embryos are this many weeks old, I could go to jail for having. So just trying to get them to think bigger than the one issue that they have on their on their agenda. Um, and so it's a it's a really intense process when you look at the legislation of all of it. Yeah. And as you say, like, it's not until you think it through. I mean, the law becomes such a complex thing. And actually, you know, this all starts out, I would like to have children. And if it happened naturally, mm -hmm. you wouldn't have any of that. But as soon as everybody yeah. sticks their nose in to what you're trying to achieve and there's you know there's hospitals involved there's doctors involved there's lawyers involved there's all these kind of elements then it becomes everybody's got their interest right and it's sort of making yeah. them all align that becomes very complicated i can see that and how many hurdles you have to go through yeah, i just interested so before we i'm conscious of time and i know that you're um but you'll be required at the library soon so um <laughs> But I'm interested in kind of something you said earlier about um, African-Americans and being adversely affected by infertility two to one. Um, can you tell us a bit more about that and kind of what what you find are the most common issues and kind of how what your experiences of that, obviously your own experience of it being African-American, but in terms of what you come across and what what obstacles people face? Yeah, so my research found that, you know, and, and it's common knowledge now, but there were studies that showed that we were affected disproportionately at two times the rate of our counterparts with infertility, but we're least likely to seek treatment. Um, and I think that there's a lot of reasons that filter into that. One, um, we may not, like in my neighborhood, this is, I'm in my childhood home. I've lived here my whole life. Um, if I go down the main street right, right across from my block, um, there are pharmacies that are boarded up. There are grocery stores that are boarded up. Um, and Chicago is a beautiful city, but it is a very segregated city. Mm. So on the south side where I live, where it's majority Black, there are less opportunities to get fresh food. There are less opportunities. You know, we live in what's called um, a food desert. Uh, we have one grocery store that's close by and no pharmacy that's close by, but there are at least 14 fast food restaurants. Um, we had like a Target, it's gone. It's just the building is boarded up. 
And it's not that we like lost the target, target pulled out. And so when you look at those kind of community issues, and then I go to the North side, which is predominantly white. If I go into like the Lincoln Park area, um, I'll find not only millions of pharmacies, but I'll find multiple grocery stores. I'll find health food stores. I'll find fertility centers. I'll find um, multiple, you know, um, planning, family planning organizations, not just like Planned Parenthood, but also like legitimately, you know, we're talking about everything from your reproductive health to um, cosmetic surgery, all of those kind of things you will find if you go to different areas. Yeah. And when you look at that, it kind of sends a message that we don't need it. It sends this message that that's not something that we deal with. And so when you find that you are the one dealing with it, you're like, wait a minute, nobody told me that this was something that affected us. And also I have to now drive an hour, hour and a half to even get to the treatment. Also, because we didn't talk about it and I didn't know that it affected us, I don't even know what to do. I don't know who to ask. I don't know where to go. um, And I don't know where to start. Yeah. There's also historically in the United States, when it comes to African-Americans and medicine, we have a a very big distrust of the medical industry and it's valid. I think a lot of times when, when people hear that we don't trust doctors or that we don't go as often, there's this, well, just go to the doctor. Why don't you just go? Um, But when you look at the historical context and you look at situations that there, where black people have been experimented on um, there, we were used for, you know, the creation of, like the vaginal speculum, the doctor who created that, he, he came to that after experimenting on enslaved Black women um, without anesthesia. There's, you know, Henrietta Lacks, whose cells were taken without her permission or her family's permission and then used to create all of these wonderful vaccines that we have, including polio and HPV, yeah. um, but to the detriment of her family's knowledge. Um, there's the Tuskegee experiment where hundreds of, of black men were allowed to live with syphilis without being given treatment, even after you know, there was a treatment for it, just so that people could study the effects. Mm. Um, and so then not only did they have syphilis, but their, their partners had syphilis and then some of their children were born with um, congenital syphilis. There are so many ex- experiments that have been done on, on us where even near, you know, Um, hospitals, Black people had to really get comfortable with going into the hospital because there would be stories of Black people that would go in for treatment for one thing and then never come out. Um, And it sounds like, you know, urban legendy, but when you look at the history and actually research, there are cases where Black people did go into the hospital for treatment um, and they were instead not treated and instead experimented on and they really never came out so we have all of these these fears that are actually valid and as they've come through history you know they do kind of morph into urban legends and things like that but they're rooted in reality and so when you look at something like infertility that takes so much medical intervention it's very unnerving and jarring for us it's very well what does that mean well what's in that medication well 
you know, even like right now, if we look at the vaccine conversation, you know, there are some people who are anti-vaccine for whatever reason. But when you look at people of color, their reason is not so much, I don't believe in medicine. It's, I don't know that I can trust what's in it. And I don't yeah. know that you're not trying to hurt me. And so when people hear that, and that hasn't been their cultural experience, they're like, well, science is science. And what's, and it's like, yeah, but also <laughs> that's, that's your experience of science. This group not of mine. people, yeah. That's not necessarily what happened with me. Yeah. Um, and there's so many things, even you know, insurance, health insurance, life insurance. I found from my research that historically um there were studies done based in eugenics and racism that said that black people were uninsurable. And so um, not only did we not receive health or life insurance, but then there would be loopholes where if we did have an issue, the companies would find ways to not pay out. And so when you think about all of those things, and then you add on to the fact that we don't talk about these issues, because historically, it's not safe for us to say whenever anything is wrong with us. Yeah. Um, if you're brought to a country specifically as livestock, and then there's something wrong with you, that puts you in danger, you know, because if you're not able to breed, which is what you've been brought here to do, or if you're not able to work, which is what you've been brought here to do, then you're disposable and expendable. And so we've learned to be quiet about those things. Don't tell anybody that there's something wrong. Don't tell anybody that you need help with this. We'll figure it out at home. We'll come up with a remedy ourselves. Because A, if they find out something's wrong with you, they could sell you away. They yeah. could separate you from your family. They could kill you. Yeah. Um, you know, like straight up kill you. And also it could make it where it puts the rest of the family in danger. Or, you know, that that concept of we'll figure it out ourselves. Because if yeah. you if a doctor needs to come, we don't know what that doctor's gonna do. So let's let's do something ourselves. Let's figure it out. All of those things, as you go down through the line, when you get to 2021, you think that those things shouldn't affect us anymore, but they do. Yeah. So when you're speaking to your grandmother and saying, you know, I think I'm going to do fertility treatment. And then her response is, we don't go to doctors like that. We don't do that. Yeah. I don't know. Something must be really wrong with you. Now yeah. it's affecting your mental health. So there's layers to all of the things that have led to us being number one, two times as likely to experience it and then least likely to seek treatment. Yeah. So it, it, there's all these things that lead to it. It's it sort of brings us back to kind of what we said, what we were talking about earlier about the things that you learn as a child as well, right? Because, you know, you're and about protecting yourself and self-preservation and all those kind of things. And if you go back through history to, you know, when slavery was a socially normal thing to happen and those kind of things well of course that's going to create a um a situation where um it instills fear and it instills all those kind of emotions in the people that are going through it and that then gets passed down quite naturally and then as you say you arrive in terms of 2021 and whilst um the world looks very different today it's in a different way in in many respects, you know, and prejudice still exists, but it exists in different guises. And so, yeah. you know, it's perfectly reasonable that, you know, people would feel the need to kind of, I'll just check that before I actually 
put my hand yeah. in that oven you know that fire seems pretty hot to me i'm not really sure yeah. it feels right you know so you know and it takes <clears throat> you know we're talking about in the grand scheme of things if we're saying 2021 is 2000 years and how long that has been around and how how long prejudice existed in really extreme forms and in really kind of terrible forms it's only really in modern times that we even got to a point where you know actually we're trying to create equality but it's not going to happen quickly and so as a result of that it does make sense really when you think about it that you know why those kind of tentative natures would exist and why you know you you're told one thing but is it really true and can i trust it it? where am i where am i going to check well i'll probably check with my parents and my and their experience of it was no 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 Mm -hmm. no no so it takes a lot of courage i think to kind of be able to to sort of brace embrace those things and and i can see that now but you know as i say as a as a white man living in england who doesn't experience hasn't experienced that kind of prejudice in the same way then it's it's fascinating to hear you talk about it and equally to be able to share it with people in this capacity and be able to say actually the next time you know you come across a couple that are are um having trouble having children and they're black rather than white their their struggles are different and their struggles are different for a reason you know um so yeah it's a really fascinating thing i one more question for you before you go before before i I release you to all the kids in the library um (laughs) given all your experience and everything you've been through what one piece of advice would you give to other people going through the same thing or or alternatively to judah and your um and the kids around you what one piece of advice would you give to them knowing what you know now Mm, i think and i say this anybody that follows me will hear me say this a lot um but really that infertility is bigger than babies so when you hear that conversation happening and you want to shy away from it because you think well that doesn't affect me i don't want kids right now um, that you recognize that when someone is dealing with infertility, it's not just they're wanting a baby that's dealing, that they're dealing with. It's how do they feel in relation to the rest of the world? Where do they feel their place is? How does their body work? What does this mean for their finances? What does this mean about their political views? What does this mean about their mental health? Like it goes down this long list. Um, and so one of the things that I really want for people to recognize is that this affects all of us in very different ways. If you're someone who had no problem having children, how are you gonna respond if eventually your children have trouble? How are you gonna talk to them about it? So it's important to pay attention to it now, not because it's something that you need, but because it's something that is affecting all of us in a different way. It's how you talk to your friends, it's how you talk to your family members. It's how you respect the choices of people around you. Um, and so infertility is much, much bigger than babies. It, it has so many facets to it and it really opens up a different level of compassion and empathy um, and patience for each other when we look at it in that fuller you know, lens. So that's, yeah. that's what I try to tell people all the time. I think that's amazing, and it's it, you're totally right. It's the ripple effects of it are far, far wide, uh, far-reaching, and very wide. So yeah, rather than it's not just about the that pinnacle of having children, is it? So yeah. 
Well, thank you very much for your time. And um, yeah, we wish you luck with everything you're doing over there with Brave and Browning. And hopefully, we'll catch up at some point in the future. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Regina. that's it for this week's born human podcast i hope you found that as informative and knowledge drenching as i did a massive thank you to regina for sharing her journey and sharing her story with us to give us the opportunity to embrace this kind of stuff the whole point of this podcast i suppose is to raise awareness of shared experience in the first instance for those people who can relate to it because all our experiences are unique there will definitely be things that we're not exposed to on a day-to-day basis but when we hear them and when you listen and when you see it through someone else's eyes what you're able to learn is a different form of empathy and you're educating yourself in a way to be able to say okay I understand that a bit better now I don't have the experience of it to be able to really empathize with it in that way but I am able to be a better support to somebody if I find myself in a situation where I know somebody who's going through that situation from that point of view it's a real eye-opener and really amazing to be able to share these kind of stories in a way where we're trying to cross-pollinate more than just talking about infertility I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Please like, subscribe, share, do all that great stuff. We know where we are and we need your help to do that. So please get these stories, help us get these stories out to the people that need them the most. And we will look forward to seeing you in two weeks' time on the next Born Human podcast.